Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Simon Hahn. Simon is the author of Nights When Nothing Happened, out now from Riverhead Books. His stories and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, The Texas Observer, Guernica, The Iowa Review, Electric Literature, and Lit Hub. The recipient of several fiction awards and arts fellowships, he was born in Tianjin, China, and raised in various cities in Texas. Maybe one day I'll be like writing till 3 a.m. because I, I just want to chase this this thread in my head and I don't want to let it go. And then another day, yeah, it's it's more like I'm, I'm revising or I'm, or I'm just reading someone else's work and, and I'm just letting things influence me in a sort of more mysterious way. Nights When Nothing Happened is, as its title suggests, a novel of subtle movements and opaque atmospheres. Inside the home of the Changs, a Chinese family living in suburban Dallas, everyone struggles to understand each other. Husband and father Liang is sullen. Wife and mother Patty is evasive. Their older child, a son named Jack, who spent his early years with his grandparents in China, struggles to find his role in the nuclear family. And their young daughter, Annabelle, born in the United States, exhibits increasingly difficult behavior. She also, unbeknownst to her parents, has started sleepwalking around their neighborhood. Without giving away too much, I'll say that an allegation of impropriety against children becomes central to the movement of the novel and reverberates throughout it. Simon deftly fits this accusation into the larger, more complicated context he's created, that of a family that feels like strangers to one another and to their neighbors inside a community that's built on uniformity. As the fallout from the accusation ensues, Nights When Nothing Happened explores how well we can ever know even our most intimate relationships, not to mention our understanding of the world around us. As Simon and I discuss here, Nights When Nothing Happened is an immigrant novel in that it is a novel about characters who are immigrants. But we also talk about how it was important to him that the book not be seen as another, more limiting conception of an immigrant novel often found in our literary dialogue. We also talk about the tricky label of universality, his favorite character to write, and how he turned this project from a short story into a novel. At WMFA's Patreon page, Simon and I talk about writing the suburbs, and why, for all our derision of them, they have something important to say about American life. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. I, I, I wanted to start actually by kind of asking you about the title, um, Nice When Nothing Happened, and, and sort of talking about where that might have come from and kind of what it means to you. I know, I know titles are, you know, maybe even not necessarily always the writer's choice, but um, how do you see it kind of playing into the events of the book? Yeah, I, I feel like the title I'm sort of asking for um, kind of like puns to be, to be used if someone uh, doesn't quite like the book or something like, oh, nothing happens. But I, I do think that there, there's, there's an element of like w- winking to the reader there because obviously things do happen in the book. Um, things do happen during these nights that the the characters are experiencing. Um, but I I'm interested in like how they define what nothing is versus what something is. I think it all kind of goes back to this idea of like the stories that we tell of our own lives. Like for example, and thinking about the suburbs as being a place where nothing happens. 
there there is an element of truth to that. I mean, anyone who spent time in the suburbs can can probably attest to that. But um, it's also an easy story to tell. I think what I wanted to explore, not just through the title, but through the book, is like why this characterization persists so much in the wider imagination, and and how this idea of like these safe civil neighborhoods with like-minded people and like no conflict and like how that is itself a myth and that there's always something happening under the surface. Um, these pressures and, and, and these people who are overlooked and yeah, everyone's just carrying their something. Right. I'm thinking as you're saying that of the scene of Liang walking home from the poker night and and making the observation that like, all of these complexes have these walls, but no gates. So it's like, right. it's not like it's really keeping anybody out, but there's this pretense of like, well, this is what the facade looks like. Right, right. Yeah. If When you like really, I don't know that much about architecture, but when you start thinking about just on the surface, like how homes are constructed and like, what are they trying to say? What story are they trying to tell in, in the way these neighborhoods are are designed? That was part of the the challenge and and the driving force of the novel is to just keep asking questions that peel back, you know, the surface. Right. Well, and I mean, it's such a like a, a neighborhood like the one the Changs live in is such a it's such an archetype of the American dream, right? It's like, well, this is what you're striving for, ostensibly. This kind of like cookie cutterish, but you know, very like. Well, you'll get the house, check. You'll get the Christmas decorations, check. You'll have the two vehicles in the driveway, check. Yeah, yeah. Christmas decorations especially, I think, is a, is a very unique uh, suburban obligation. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe not unique just to suburbia, but this idea of, like, are you going to participate in this ritual, even if you don't celebrate Christmas, right? Like, everybody else on your street has these Christmas lights. Um, yeah, I mean, I imagine, I, I, I mean, I remember even because I, I did grow up for a large part of my life in the suburbs. I, I remember like there was this one community where we would all, like in the book, there's this community that we would all like drive through uh, during the holidays because they had the best Christmas lights. But like, what if you lived in that community and like didn't want to put Christmas lights? Like, pretty wild. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely. Growing up, we had we had one of those neighborhoods too, or like a block that was like, and it was the same block that like on Halloween. That's where you got like the full size candy. It was like right, the block. Right. It's like they had like the good Christmas decorations. But yeah, now that I'm an adult, I, you're right. You just think more of the perspective from the perspective of these parents who are like, oh my god, do I have to like go go through all of this expense and effort and um, a, a thing that's really interesting that all of these factors about the setting kind of play in the book is it is, there's this sort of peer pressure that exists, you know, no matter who you are in these neighborhoods to kind of, um, you know, present this certain way. Um, but then also this particular family has that, um, that other layer of pressure of being Chinese American and feeling that sort of distance from from a lot of their neighbors as well. Did you see those things kind of playing together? Yeah, I, I I wanted very much for this book not to just be a kind of us versus them kind of conflict. Yeah. Where the them is usually like, 
white people or like, and then non-white people versus white people. I, I think the reality of, of what America looks like today is much more nuanced than that. And this family itself, like, um, because they they are coming from a different context, they have experienced all this turmoil um, in their home country. And then there's the turmoil of immigration and the various gulfs that have um, sort of risen up among them in within the family that I wanted to also look sort of not just like the house versus the other houses on the street, but look within the house itself and think about the particular pressures there. I mean, the external threats are still applying a kind of pressure onto the family dynamics, but th these are family members that are kind of strangers to themselves too. And, and part of that is trying to understand like where they, they come from and they all come from different contexts. Right. There is a very nocturnal atmosphere in this family, you know, like for, for one thing, Annabelle with her sleepwalking, which is just like a concept I'm obsessed with and would love to just like talk about for, cause just, cause just like sleep, if you think too long about it, freaks me out yeah. anyway, you know, like I just find sleep kind of gross and weird and it's like, mm -hmm. and then, you know, we're so incapacitated. And so like, she doesn't remember all of these things that she's doing and, you know, she's, you know, she's walking around, she's leaving the house at certain times. And, and, and I really like the ways that you get into her consciousness. I want to ask you a little bit more later about that, but, um, but yeah, she doesn't even know. She's like, well, maybe I dreamt that or maybe I didn't. And, and you know, the, but, but everybody's engagements with each other within the family are kind of shadowy and you never really know. You, I got the sense that nobody ever really understood anyone else in their nuclear family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which you don't. I mean, I guess a lot, of, you know, not ultimately. Yeah, I mean, who can, who can really know fully know another person i mean it sounds like such a basic thing but but within a family there's this kind of obligation that somehow like you're born into it and so you're sort of born into a kind of intimacy but that itself is a kind of myth too right like it's maybe even harder to get to know your own family because it requires a, a level of engagement that can be very scary and um like you feel like there's a, a lot at stake, like losing a relationship, say with a friend that you've been friends with for a couple years and it, there's just a falling out. I mean, that's certainly hard, but like family is some, is, are people that you are still tied to in some way. Um, and, and I think you're, you, you often risk more when um, you try to really get to know another person in your family. I, I imagine this is a, something that a lot of families are going through these past few years. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, part of the built-in conflict of that is like how hard it is to change sort of your role within a family. You know, like once, if, if you're kind of perceived a way that you don't really want to be perceived or maybe that you you want a little bit more, um, I don't know, autonomy or power. I'm thinking of Jack and the way he's kind of just trying to like figure out like what, what his job is in the family and sort of like how, you know, I, I, I feel like from the beginning, he puts so much pressure, he's putting so much pressure on himself. Um, but it's hard to kind of assert like the way that you want to, it's assert, it's hard to assert to be seen the way you want to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I mean, Jack is 
so he's the he's the boy in this family and the the son and um i mean he was born in a country he can't remember and um or he's slowly slowly starting to forget and um he's had to kind of like re-meet his mm -hmm. parents you know later in his life when he joins them in america and i think as a result of that he's he's feeling these sort of tenuous connections to people and places and and so like having a role having a defined role in the family like would ground him and so he's trying to constantly find that and and improve himself because i i guess like he doesn't he doesn't quite realize that like at least with this family it's possible that love can exist in an unconditional way he, he feels like he's got to somehow earn it um and so, yeah, as children do, they they you know they find ways to do that. Whether it's like modeling themselves off adults, um, or you know trying to be this protector figure for his younger sister. Yeah, I really I really feel for him. Yeah, there there was a a line early on that that really just got me when he was saying uh, he says something like he um, he had made his grandparents frail, and now they were too frail to come with him. Mm -hmm. just this feeling of just like, okay, well, I, I am responsible for everything, you know, which like, I don't know, I guess like this window into my childhood psyche that like <laughs> I resonate really strongly with that feeling of like that no one necessarily puts on you, you know, but, mm -hmm. but you're, you're, you feel like your little shoulders have to like bear everything. And then that the dynamic with Annabelle kind of reinforces that, right? Cause she's such a, she's tough. How do you the talk? Can you talk a little bit about like your relationship as a writer to the character of Annabelle? Yeah, I I love writing her character. I, I don't know that I could spend too much time with her. Like if she was a real person, I would I would be, a, <laughs> I, it would be a lot, I would be tired, but, um, but I do love her as a character. I think because I had, I felt like with her, I had the most room to play as a writer. Um, you know, the mm -hmm. other three members of the family, they are a little bit more, conflict avoidant and they're trying to like slip in into you know other people's narratives and projections but for Annabelle she's very much like you know when she's in the room you know she really announces herself and she has this ability to slip into different skins and different costumes and um, while still being a child at heart so there's so many places to go with her character that that also would then sort of push forward the book itself and in the action itself. So yeah, I, I thought she was a very necessary character, but also really liked spending time with her. You've got this kind of like Machiavellian quality of just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's real, she's real, uh, I don't know, she's devious. Like there's something kind of devious about her. Um, but that, yeah, makes for great, makes for great movement. And um, what do you, I know this is so hard to um, pinpoint these sorts of things, but like, where in the development of Annabelle did the sleepwalking come in and sort of what does that represent for you with her? Yeah, let me try to think. I, well, I think fairly early on there was sleepwalking. And I think, I mean, it, it's, it's not that the sleepwalking was the initial inspiration for writing the book. I think I wanted to capture this this general mood and feeling of like being in a world which you feel like you're you're gradually losing control, um, not only like on your own security, but like your own grasp of reality. And sleepwalking felt like a perfect vehicle to explore that. So 
I think in a this this book actually started as a short story, and in that story, there, Annabelle was sleepwalking, and and Jack was kind of following her, and that was one of the initial incidents that that started off the story. Um, it, it went in a different direction um, in the in the initial short story, but. But yeah, fairly early on, um, she was sleepwalking. Did you did you kind of finish that short story and then just sort of felt like the the characters weren't done? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I it, like the story had an entire arc, but it also felt like the ending was kind of opening up to uh, another story or like the story that I really wanted to tell. Um, so it almost felt like a prologue of sorts. And and so when I just kept thinking about these characters, I thought. Like, why not make it a novel? And um, I mean, that then there was this whole long process of of doing that and a lot of mistakes um, in which I, I think this is maybe something a lot of writers who like expand short stories into a novel face because it's, I don't think it's as, as simple necessarily as just making the short story the first chapter of your book. Right. You've got to sort of change the scope and the structure a bit because I just short stories and novels are such different beasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny when you said that it felt like a prologue to the story that you really wanted to write. I was like, that's like 80% of my drafts. I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay, yeah. you're getting there. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I think, um, I think Alexander Chi said something really helpful about that. Like so much of what you're writing is like scaffolding uh, and, yeah. and you're like, you have to write it though to see what's kind of underneath and what what the heart of the actual story is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, but sorry, going back to to the point that you had actually just made about because um, the the rhythms have to be so entirely different, right? You can't really sustain the short story sort of. Um, I, I guess pace, although it's not entirely the word that I want to choose, but you know, like that, that sort of metabolism can't last for the the length of the novel. Yeah, that, that was my biggest struggle because I had this dramatic event in the short story. And like, so that, that made me front load all the action in my novel because my, my original draft of the novel, basically I didn't change much of the short story. I just made it the first chapter, but that meant there was this big dramatic thing that happened and then when all the good stuff is in the first chapter, you're like, where do I go next? And <laughs> like, I, I tried a lot of different things. Like one was to basically just uh, change the kind of pitch of the novel and like start a new arc. But that felt kind of like a letdown because of all the dramatic stuff that happened in the first chapter. Mm. And then I tried to do the opposite where I was sort of like escalating the next chapter, like escalating the action. And, and it just got more and more dramatic and dark to the point where I felt like the novel couldn't really sustain it. It was, it was like, I don't know why I'm suddenly thinking about this, but you know, it's like the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like in one movie, a car is literally like jump, jumping out of a skyscraper and landing in another skyscraper. It's like, where do you go from there? Like, where do you go from <laughs> the next movie, the car's in outer space. And like, it works for Fast and Furious. Like I love, sure. I love the series. It works for them because they really lean into it. That, that's what the movies are all about, but um, maybe not like so much for my novels. So I had to, <laughs> I had to sort of figure out what arc it really could sustain. Right. Well, and that's really interesting to talk about knowing, um, you know, not to give away 
really what what happens in the book, but you know, there is this allegation of impropriety um, on the part of Leong the father and potentially Annabelle, potentially to a neighbor girl, a friend of Annabelle's. Um, and that's the sort of kind of like plot bomb that could really like sort of black hole, become like this kind of black hole for the narrative, you know, and sort of just like take it into this very different direction. But but you do kind of weave it in in a way that like, I don't know, I was really, I was really fascinated by the way that it sort of existed within the larger context of the story and kind of didn't overwhelm the story that was already being told, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I think my my editor helped me so much with that because like she helped me to see that like that event which occurs sort of in the middle of the novel like initially i had pushed it much earlier and again that that put the kind of pressure on me to keep escalating but she she, she was like you know there's so much interesting stuff in the middle that you you have yet to explore like if if you were to stretch it out um and and sort of take more time delicately setting up the domino pieces um we would we would know these characters better and like what they're carrying up until that scene um and so yeah it was just like pacing is, was part of it but it was also just allowing myself to to be okay um spending more time in those quiet moments that i think really are more where the heart of the the novel is Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's one thing, you know, to the, to the title, like it is, um, it is a lot of, despite having just explained this, this kind of big, you know, capital D dramatic um, turn, it is a very quiet book in a lot of ways. And the, and, and the things that, which tend to be my favorite to read is the sort of just kind of like character studies where you can, you know, there's, there's enough plot to move forward, but it's not like you're like, oh my God, I have to like skip to the end and f- make sure this person survives or like all right. those kind of <laughs> high stakes things. Um, yeah, and and I think you do really feel for, I mean, that's part of what makes it such a, um, such a visceral kind of reading experience when that comes is because you really are feeling for everybody who's involved, even though all of the, your sympathies are going in like 18 different directions, but you get why everybody is responding the way that they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the space in fiction that um, I'm most interested in exploring. I mean, there's, there's certainly like villains in our world, but it just, yeah, I don't know. I'd rather like not waste my time on, on, on trolls. Like I, you know, I, I want, I like, I, I liked spending time with flawed characters and, um, spending time with characters who care about things, but but also uh, just have different ideas about how to get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that I that I thought was was interesting, and I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and I don't know if I'm like making this up, if this if I'm if I'm if I'm reading too much into things, but um, it occurred to me that Liang is the only one who um, is using a Chinese name in the family. Um, and I wondered if that like had any significance for you in terms of, you know, any kind of subtext about like how he's relating to this experience versus how his family members are relating to this experience, just kind of being their lives. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that question. I, I think, I think, um, the ways in which we 
choose our names. Um, like what I mean is like when we, if you're an immigrant and you move sort of to another country, there's this, there's this often this question of, do you keep, you know, the name that you used in your home country or do you Americanize it? Um, and, and, it, but, but I think that process is, is complicated. I, I remember, um, like when I was in, uh, my MFA, there was a very well-meaning, you know, um, freshman that I was talking to in a sort of book club that we were setting up and and she was talking about how um oh with every with all the international students she always asked them like what's her what's your real name because she wants to get to know the real them and rather than the if their name is like Wesley or Janice like they wanted right. she wanted to know their real names and and I think I, I think I understand where that's coming from but I think that these international students are are changing their names Yes, on one hand, to accommodate you know non-Western people, but the process of it is also deeply personal, right? And mm -hmm. it's um, it's important in ways that we may not even understand. Like for example, my 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 name, my legal name wasn't Simon until I became a citizen in my teens, and but I I I just that's that's what I identify as. I I like can't, really can't imagine being um, Xingmeng, which was my legal name up until then, um, and I think. For Liang, it's probably maybe something like that. I, I mean, I think Patty is someone who is very much in the world and in the workforce and is quicker to accommodate herself to others. And part of that is a is a is a strategy mm -hmm. for survival and for advancement. Um, whereas Liang is sort of, you know, he's he's spent his entire life struggling to have his own realities validated. And, and, and he's, you know, he's, I, I don't want to put too much weight into the name, but, but I, I do think it may, may tie into that, whether consciously or unconsciously, this, just this idea of like, this is maybe one thing that he, that he, for him, that he wants to hold on to. But um, I don't think that with, um, Patty, um, not with, with Patty changing her name, I, I don't see that as a kind of failure on her part either. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and like you're saying, especially with the work context and, and, you know, I think too, like when you're talking about being accommodating, I think too, just like, yeah, being like a woman in the world, no matter like what kind of woman you yeah, are, yeah. you're kind of taught like that, that you should sort of just be easier to deal with. Um, so, so all of that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think about those perspectives with, um, I really liked this touch with Annabelle where like she she's a little bit obsessed with the idea of China, but like it seemed with very little input from mm -hmm. her family. Like she's just kind of obsessed with it as this idea that's like a little hard for her to grasp that like, you know, she feels like she can like hear it like underground. Like, you know, it's just like on the other side of the ground. Like she's yeah. so she's got this very kind of childlike enthusiasm about it but but it, so she's got it's like this very intense connection but then like very disconnected at the same time yeah yeah i mean she's the only one in the family that wasn't born in china so right i mean she knows very little about china and and maybe a lot of what she knows is like what um other people who aren't from china are telling her about it and uh, i i mean i remember as a kid there was always that uh the kind of make-believe thing where you can dig a hole into and you arrive in China, right? So I think she's probably thinking along those lines. But um, 
But I think she's also feeling a lack there because she knows the rest of her family is from China. Mm. She feels like that that there's a part of her family that they share, but she can't access. So it is intense. Yeah. 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 I'm curious, and and this is a little bit of a thorny question to ask. So I apologize in advance if I if I don't word it properly. But like, I talk a lot with various writers on the show about this idea of having like a multiplicity of narratives and making sure that no one story is trying to mm. be is being interpreted because it's usually in the interpretation, right, and not in the not in the author's intention as as kind of like the definitive X experience. And so I wondered you know, when mm-hmm. you were working on this and getting it ready to, you know, thinking about like, what the, what does this look like on the marketplace? And like, where, wh- you know, once you kind of start having those thoughts, right? Once the story is kind of coming together, like, did you think much about what kind of story of, of this, of the Chinese American identity you like did or didn't want to tell? Or like, you know, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I Ideally, like, I mean, this is impossible, but this idea of like the the creative process could exist in a vacuum, right? And that you could that it could be per- protected from marketplace concerns. I mean, mm-hmm. whether consciously or unconsciously, I'm I'm sure I did think about that. And and now that I've like finished the novel, and I'm like on the publicity stage, it's it's definitely like on the at the forefront of my mind. And I I remember like having these initial. Um, discussions um, like with my publicists where I might have come across almost a little defensive when I was like, I I don't want this to be like the uh, quote unquote immigrant novel. And I didn't really like, I didn't do a good job of explaining like what I meant by that because like it is an immigrant novel, like these are immigrants and this is a novel. (laughs) Um, But I guess I was thinking about how almost the genre of it, of, of, of immigrant novel has become a bit in my mind, a bit flattened. And, and it's not really about even what's, what the content of these novels are. It's just how they're perceived, how they're talked about. And it plays into this narrative often of like, um, oh, uh, uh, Kathy Park Hong has a great essay about that in, in, in the book she released this year, Minor Feelings, mm-hmm. where she talks about um, how like Asian immigrant narratives are often predicated on individual mm-hmm. growth this this idea of like someone with this dream and like under like really difficult circumstances they persevere and they sacrifice and they gain acceptance that kind of thing like that's growth individual growth but like what there's so many other layers to explore in that like particularly in how mm-hmm. a kind of racist capitalist system can actually keep an individual um sort of confine an individual and make it so that an individual can't grow or can't even see themselves as an individual. And so I wanted space for this book to be like whatever it wanted to be and to explore like, yeah, characters changing and growing, but also like these characters, I don't know if they want to change. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. There's a limit to how much they can change. Mm -hmm. um, And there's different reasons for that. And so I, I, I wanted to give them the freedom to be that. And also I wanted this book to have the freedom to be other kinds of books. I wanted it to be right. uh, a Texan book. I wanted it to be, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a book about family um, or just, I don't know, just there's all these other categories it could fall under. Um, so yeah, it is a it is a kind of pressure. I don't quite know how to navigate it, but 
but but it is it, it is an immigrant novel and I, I think it but it's just about allowing it to be more than that as well right and I think I think you articulated it exactly it's like that's not that's become a genre kind of like that's become a, a label that's very different from just saying these are two elements that are a part of like the object that you're holding you know like we've we've come to talk about that in a very specific way um and yeah I haven't read minor feelings yet but I think she's like just a genius. So I'm not surprised that this is I'm excited to read that essay. Um, and I, I talk about this often on the show too. Like I am from and write a lot about Appalachia and, and it's a different set of um, kind of prejudices and, and assumptions that you're dealing with. But I get very defensive about, about how things are, you know, well, is this the sort of, um, story that we've read a thousand times that just like, you know, and I think, you know, I'm much more fluent, obviously, in the in the kind of trappings of that sort of um, story. But but for me, thinking about that, you're, you're either very, it's either this very hard scrabble kind of rural existence, or you're romanticizing it in this kind of just Pollyannish, like, you know, living at one with the earth kind of way. And there's just not a lot of room for nuance or reality in any of those. And, and I think this novel is, it's kind of all nuance. Hmm. Um, Cause everybody is like, everything is subtle and everything is ambiguous enough that there, there are all of these kind of everybody, everybody's constantly, I feel like trying to find their footing and not quite finding it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear about your experience in, in, in dealing with that, like the, the sort of narratives that have been projected onto you and in your work and, and sort of how to respond to that. Because I think, yeah, like I think at the end of the day, um, maybe it's, it is in, in allowing things to be ambiguous and allowing things to be specific, like allowing this to be like the experience of specific characters rather than stand-ins for a kind of population that is, Absolutely. you know, yeah, really hard to categorize. But I do find myself sometimes caught in this trap where I'm like, okay, like, okay, I don't want these characters to be model minorities. So mm. I'm going to make them do the exact opposite of what like model <laughs> minorities are supposed to do, right? Like right. none of them can be good at math. And it's like, well, it's okay if one of them is good at math. It doesn't like, you know, there's this, I think you're still, I still feel myself sometimes centering those like outside narratives in my response to them, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Or like the outside, like, I mean, this is such a, it's become such a term, but like the outside gaze. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit right on this topic of, um, I was just uh, reading your essay about um, universality on LitHub. Um, and, and it was, and I'll link to it on the show page. People should definitely go read it. It was, it was on the occasion of the wonderful movie, The Farewell. Um, but, but you talk a lot about this idea of um, when we talk about things being universal, not only does that kind of flatten a specific experience and sort of rob it of its significance so that it can apply to everybody, but also like even the use of the term universal is kind of assuming that outsider gaze that we're talking about, that like we can, you know, like you have to preface everything by saying like, don't worry, this is for you too. And it, you know, it feels a little accommodating in maybe a, an uncomfortable kind of way. Yeah, I, um, I struggle with that because it's like, I know that like when someone, if someone were to call my my book universal, they would they would have like the best of intentions like they they're trying to say something nice but 
at at the same time, um, it's like if you really unpack that word, like can writing ever be like universal? I, I mean, language and geography aside, there will always be groups of people who are not going to experience it the same way, um, or or will have trouble accessing a certain part of it. Um, because we all just have different contexts in which we're coming from, and 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 that's a, that's within like Asian Americans or Chinese Americans that would read my my book too, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes I feel like by calling something universal, we're often um, we're often saying that it reflects it reflects a life that is sort of. Um, already sort of reflected if, if that makes sense it's it's like um it, it's praising the book's ability to give access to to people who are used to getting access and and that somehow be is the status quo for like what makes a book universal um so so yeah i just maybe i just don't think it's like a useful question um because we're all like learning when we read to like slip into other people's minds and and um slip slip into their characters and yeah yeah so yeah absolutely and i mean like i think there are you know there are of course there are um emotions that are universal there are like you know you can kind of break down into these like sort of lowest common denominator like categories of mm -hmm. like okay you know difficulty connecting with a parent is a universal you know something like that but it's like by the time what you have to strip away to define it in those terms. Yeah, and I, I don't think we have to read to find similarities between us as readers and the characters. Right. At least that's not how I read. I think, I, you know, it's just not really the, the point. And I think I'd rather just be challenged. I, I, I you know, I'd rather be made slightly uncomfortable um, because I think that allows me to, to see myself more clearly too. Right, right. Along that line, um, was there any kind of a conversation about including, because um, there's there's some Chinese language kind of peppered through the book. There's some expressions in terms of endearment and that sort of thing. Um, was that something that you did consciously? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, just felt like another way to, to center the characters and their perspectives. Um, because for them, you know, Mandarin is not foreign and the way that like, they would incorporate Mandarin alongside English and sort of build this new language um, is also very much like quote unquote normal to them. Um, and I was actually interested in uh, thinking about how certain English words could be foreign to them. And, and, and um, like, I think Patty at some point ruminates on the word uh, shithead. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think <laughs> yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. 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 yeah like, Which, yeah, like makes no sense when you <laughs> right, she's right. like, I understand these two words separately, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love, I love sort of reorienting language that way to like bring out the, the weirdness and limitations even of, of, of English through a different perspective. There's an amazing story by Gish Jen. I, I um, called Who's Irish, that was really important to me, in which like it was the first time I'd seen a narrator who who was this like Chinese grandmother. Um, and it was written in like first person and like quote unquote broken English. She was able to capture through that perspective like actually more or less the the limitations of the English that other characters were using and and how 
they thought certain words like were enough, but really like their sentences were totally vague and and meaningless. <laughs> and it was it was it was this outsider to the English language that was able to notice these things. It reminds me too what you're saying of um a while back I had um, Pam Zhang on the show and she was talking about her debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold. And she said, you know, we were having, having a similar conversation about the language in the book. And, and she was saying that, you know, in large part, she wrote the book for the characters of the book, um, which I really loved. And this idea kind of translates for me too with what you're saying of like this particular, um, they would be mixing the, you know, the, the, and the kids would be saying things like shithead, like all of these weird sort of like combinations that would get introduced kind of into the family uh, vocabulary um, make perfect sense for, for those people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Pam's book and, and I, I could totally see that. And um, it, it, it felt so natural to the rhythms of her prose too. Um, totally. It would, it would just, it would take me out if like suddenly you know, she's translating the the Chinese and and like, you know, stepping out of the book to say, hey, like reader who doesn't know this word, let me, you know, take a moment to explain. And yeah. Right. And I think, you know, likewise here in this book, because it's so often, um, there's a tremendous intimacy in the way that it exists in this book, because it is so often, you know, because it's this family that is, a little bit mysterious or, you know, as all families are like, you know, it's their kind of heart. It's kind of hard to, um, you know, as we've been saying, get your footing about, about them all and about them all, their relationships with one another and as a unit. Um, and so it is this very private, you know, and especially I think that's most, most salient when the, um, there's a there's a stranger there's a very official uh a stranger who comes to the house in a very official capacity um and patty is kind of barking instructions to the kids in mandarin before she's asked to stop speaking to only speak english kind of in this woman's presence yeah yeah like i think these characters are using language and their different um experience levels with language can be a a way of um creating distance between them, especially among generations. I think about this and like, what are the kind of conversations I can't have with my grandpa because I just don't have the vocabulary to have them. Mm. At the same time, it's in certain moments, it, it can be a way of finding immediate kind of commonality or even having this space that you can protect for, for yourself. And that's, I think, what Patty and Annabelle were trying to do in that moment, but because of the circumstances, they weren't able to. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Well, let's um, maybe transition a little bit to just talking about kind of writing, writing more generally. Um, you have an MFA, you've studied writing, so I, I assume you've kind of been writing forever, or did, did you come to writing 
at a particular moment in your life? Yeah, well, I guess big writer as a kid, I would my, my parents would take me to work and sit me down at their cubicle um, because they're both working full time. And um, I just often spend that time writing and binding the pages together and like making a cover and then like making a little like bookstore at home where I would try to sell it back to my parents. I was, I was actually more like, oh uh, like yeah, I was more like That's a amazing. business person, if anything. Um, I guess there was an <laughs> art to it, but it was more like, you know, I, I knew that they would feel this pressure to buy it. You know, it's better than like what other kids could be doing with their free time. So yeah, I mean, I, I but I, I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed writing and reading and I, but then, you know, there's that, there's that period of my life in like high school or where I just, I kind of went away from it because it didn't seem like something that I could be, even though I knew writers obviously existed. Writing was something that I eventually tricked myself into into taking seriously and, and sticking through. And I mean, for better or for worse, like MFAs are incredibly prevalent now, but it helped me to like get that confidence to to try out being a writer and and it gave me like uh you know a stipend and you know it was fully funded so that was very helpful yeah so i just gradually found my way back to it right you know sort of however any one writer chooses to do it i feel like that kind of that process of formalizing it is very important you know whether whether it's an mfa or just some you know workshops or whatever it is that like helps you take yourself seriously as a writer because you're right I and I and I know so many other writers who agree with this and I am the same way like you know you grow we grow up as these like voracious readers and writers but even still it doesn't occur to us that it's like a real thing that people can get to do and so you you kind of there's the cognitive dissonance between like well I know that these books that are in my hand were written by somebody but how does one become that person? Yeah, I think that's when a workshop is working well, is like, it feels like this protective bubble where for the first time, like people are talking about your writing seriously, as if it were a book that's out in the world. And, and that's, I think, really important for people who, who are not yet like ready to call themselves writers. Like, I think that's an important thing to experience. Um, I remember like, you know, in that experience can can happen outside of a formal workshop. Like I remember, uh, what was it? Maybe like eighth grade or something. Like one of my English teacher. Like I remember she picked out an essay just randomly from a from the bunch. We were writing personal essays, and and it happened to be mine. And and she really got into it and was doing all the voices and gesturing and like, and she was a really good reader. And and to just see her like take my words seriously like that was was really important to me. Um, and I think a workshop can can do that as well. Um, though on the flip side, it can also, if it's sort of run poorly, can also feel like you're putting your work up on trial. And, sure. and that's also, you know, that can be discouraging too. Yeah, what an amazing memory. That's such a good story. Yeah. I love that. I hope that I hope that teacher knows what a what a big impact. I has. know. I've been trying to find her. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I would like her to know that too. I came across as I was preparing for our conversation. Um, there is a small. Uh, you know, you have like a, a kind of little entry on the McDowell Colony website um, that mentions that you found out that you sold your book while you were at residence. Yeah, yeah. It just seems incredible. 
Congratulations. <laughs> that was a cool moment. Yeah, it, it was wild. I mean, part of I mean, it was logistically kind of difficult because cell phone um, connection there is really bad. Sure. Um, so I remember getting some emails um, from my agent that uh, my eventual editor but was interested and wanted to talk first um, about sort of her ideas. And and I was just like, yeah, very nervous for that phone call. And I had to like take it in the the common room and sort of some of the writers were, 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 were sort of in the corner and they could hear little bits and they're like, oh, this sounds serious, but also good. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, I, I really don't know if there's a better place to receive news like that than around other writers because they, they just, they got it. You know, they knew what that meant. Yeah. Yeah. How does writing fit into your life now? Are you, do you write full time or write and teach? Do you have a day job? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'm not full time. I'm I'm doing some like virtual teaching. I'm I'm trying to, you know, mm-hmm. get a teaching job. It's which is getting to be increasingly harder in this environment. Um, I actually, yeah. I, I'm actually living um, in a city bordering Plano right now. Um, where my parents live, um, sort of in this transition stage where I, I finished my fellowship. I had a fellowship in Tulsa, Oklahoma for the past three years, and I was also teaching there. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of done with that. And the original plan was to um, move to California, where my wife is a student there. Um, but because, you know, her classes are online, we're back in Texas and um, trying to figure it out. Um but it's it's it is much cheaper to live here, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, I just um, a few days ago I spoke with Anne Helen Peterson, and she's she's in Montana, and I'm in Maine, and we didn't actually really talk about it that much. But it it is funny this sort of like I feel like there's been this kind of bigger movement lately of maybe just like anecdotally of writers I follow on social media, like seeing people like leave bigger cities and just being like, well, I can do my work well here in the middle of nowhere or like in this, you know, smaller city that's not New York or LA and and kind of have something like a quality of life. Yeah, I, I think that can be a good thing because like, yeah, you, you really can write anywhere and you can still connect to like New York industry people um, virtually. And, you know, it's like, you don't necessarily have to live in New York. Um, I do miss like aspects of like the literary community that I'm, I'm starting to discover in Dallas, but sure. I do hope that maybe one silver lining of this year is that people feel like, like that writing uh, can be more accessible um, and that they don't have to feel like because they, they don't live near like San Francisco or New York, that they somehow aren't part of the community. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I've had conversations with writers since, you know, everything happened who, you know, had books kind of come out on smaller presses or things like that, that they're just like, now I can have a book tour. Like I wasn't going to be able to travel to all of these places, but like now I'm like doing these virtual events and, you know, not at all to make it <laughs> to a, like, isn't there actually a great positive to this? But I think, you know, eventually these are some interesting takeaways that like there is something really valuable about um, having an aspect of this connection that is virtual and, and more accessible. Yeah, yeah. And I think with um, with teaching too, and with people wanting to take uh, creative writing classes, like sometimes the idea of like, just upending your life and moving and doing an MFA program, it just, it's not feasible. But like, 
there's so many like cheaper, more affordable, like virtual workshops and things like that. It, yeah, I, I, I do think like these are things that probably should have been happening before now, but at least it's become more normalized and, and I hope it keeps going like that as well, as well as the in-person component, because I do miss that. Right, yeah, for sure. Do you write every day? What's your writing kind of pace like? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's very different now because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm there's like, I, I'm working on various projects, um, like I'm writing some essays that are somewhat related to the book. Um, it's been a while since I've like really had this focused long project like this novel. And and when I was in um, residency in, in Oklahoma, I was able to write every day. That was a great like privilege of mine. I don't know what, what sort of writing will look like in the future. I try to carve out time every day, but I'm also trying to take it easy, uh, especially this year. Yeah, for sure. I've just, I just moved this year also. Um, and so everything has been like extra upheaval. And I got this piece of advice, like, just try like spending some time just like reading your work and not feeling like you need to do anything else with it. Right. And it just some days it feels like that's like all I can do is just like, okay, well, I reread this draft. And I think like just the kind of like, I don't know, I was at a, at a residency once and a, and a visual artist was saying like about her studio practice she was like I have to touch it every day and I like that idea of just like you just have to like you at least have to like make contact yeah yeah I I love that I mean I I think that's one of the things I love about just writing and or or just a life in the arts in general is that like I mean in 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 all the other parts of my life I'm often I'm more like a planner and I'm 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 fairly organized person but I'm trying to give myself permission to be more chaotic in my writing process uh, because I think that's where like the, the writing feels most alive anyway. For me, at least when I'm like able to be organized in the other aspects, like I, I feel very free to then just like go a little wild in, in how I write. And, you know, maybe one day I'll be like writing till 3 a.m. because I, I just want to chase this this thread in my head and I don't want to let it go. And then another day, yeah, it's it's more like I'm I'm revising or I'm or I'm just reading someone else's work and and I'm just letting things influence me in a sort of more mysterious way. Mm. I love how how are you finding um, giving yourself permission to do that? Because I'm I'm very similar. I'm a little I'm maybe a little too Type A in the rest of my life, and so sometimes <laughs> it can actually really stress me out. Kind of the chaos of I, you know, my my partner is a is a composer, and he's always like, "Yeah, but the mess is fun," and I'm like, "I can't get there to feeling <laughs> like the mess is fun. Messes stress me out so much." I, I yeah, I totally totally get that. When you pick up a book at a bookstore, it looks very organized. It looks very pretty on the page. Um, I think it's just kind of reminding myself okay, think about how messy your process was to get your book up there. Like, there's all this crap behind this book that, you know, it's not in the presentation. And and just reminding myself that all all other writers are going through this and it actually can help them, right? It's like not a kind of like X input equals Y output. And, and that's what I love about writing. I love that. Yeah, that's great. I'll try to steal that for myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm constantly struggling with that too. I say this, but then I don't follow my own advice. Oh, that's what this whole show is about. That's fine. Yeah. 
Um, that's a great segue to uh, the last question that I always like to ask um, at the end of my conversations here, which is, uh, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Creative satisfaction. Um, yeah, I, I love this question. I, I, I think it, I, I feel like with students of mine uh, in the past, we've sort of circled around this question because like oftentimes I have students who are extremely talented, but they're like quite hard on themselves and they seem to never be satisfied. And and I wanna just tell them like, oh my gosh, you're like writing amazing stuff that's way better than anything I could manage when I was starting out. Um, but also like I, I, I've started telling myself this too, but that your perpetual creative dissatisfaction may may be coming from this like growing self-awareness, like you're becoming a deeper reader, you're being a closer observer of the world, you're growing into language, you're, you're growing as a human being. So like when you begin to see the bigger picture, um, it's hard to be satisfied, right? You, you feel like you have farther to go. Um, so I feel like I'm going away from your question, but, but like to, I guess creative satisfaction to me is, is to be content knowing that like, it's okay. I, I have far to go. And that actually may be a good thing. Like to know that your best creative work is always at some point in the future that maybe I'll never reach. Um, that actually somehow comforts me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love how you frame that of like the dissatisfaction often coming from growth and feeling like, well, now you know more about how to, how to make something even better. And so you're, you're seeing cracks maybe where you hadn't seen them before or things like that. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was really fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, this was, this was great. Um, I really appreciate the time you spend in, in your questions. Um, help me see, see my book in a different light too. Oh, I love to hear that. Wonderful. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.